John 4, 46. This is the word of God. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him yesterday that the seventh hour the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Send out thy light and thy truth, O Lord. Let them lead us. Let them bring us to thy holy hill and to thy dwelling place. Amen. Faith is complicated. On the one hand, it's binary. You have it or you don't. The Bible teaches that true saving faith is a gift of God, that it always produces the fruit of the Spirit, and that without it, we cannot please God. You have it or you don't. But false faith is also a thing. People will often say, I'm a person of faith. And sometimes what they're calling faith is just some vague spirituality, some wishfulness for a good outcome. And that probably does come in measures of more or less. For some people, it's very important. They're spiritual people. And others like to keep the notion around just in case it's needed. At times, the Bible speaks in measures of faith as well. Jesus refers to faith the size of a mustard seed. Paul encourages us to welcome the one who is weak in faith. But given the contexts, I don't think these verses dispute the binary nature of true faith. These aren't definitions or precise explanations. These are statements about faith as we experience it in life. Haven't we all experienced moments where our faith feels weak or immature? Or in sustained, difficult circumstances like our faith is shrinking away? And on the other hand, we've known moments when our faith feels strong, when we're very secure in it, and at times where we would say our faith is even growing. Now, we're free to speak that way. That's not the point. But what's technically true is that faith does not change. We have it or we don't. We feel like it changes when actually We're the ones changing. We might stand firm in our faith, or at times we might shrink back from it. But the faith itself didn't change. Since life will often test our faith, that should be encouraging to us. 
James says that it's the testing of faith that produces steadfastness. And it's good to know when we're struggling that what we need is not stronger faith, as if the faith God gave us is defective. What we need is greater willingness to look upon him in faith and to be led in his holy way. Leaving the new converts in Samaria, Jesus heads to Galilee. He'll minister here for about 18 months. This time in his ministry is recorded in great detail in Matthew and Mark. And he's returning specifically to the city of Cana. And it's what's happened in the last few passages that explain why. When he was baptizing, he was attracting crowds and honor. And this was upsetting to John's disciples and then eventually to the Pharisees. In Samaria, what started with a conversation with a single woman at the well had morphed into a citywide revival. Jesus is starting to get a lot of fans, and with fans come honor, and with honor comes attention. So where does a person go when they don't want to be honored? Where does a person go to get away from the attention that fame and glory brings? Where could they go where nobody thinks they're special? home. You go home. You go back to your own people. Nobody can quite take you off a pedestal like your own people. Or as Jesus puts it, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now Jesus and we should know how this reception will go. We've seen it before back in chapter two. The Jews challenged his authority. Many of the supposed Jewish converts were false. Even his own disciples did not understand him. If Jesus wants a place without honor, he's headed in the right direction. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So back to Cana we go. And arriving there, he meets a very important man, a royal official. This man is most likely a Jew, somewhere in King Herod's chain of command. But that doesn't matter. Because to this man, only one thing matters right now. His son is dying. Now, this is one of those interactions in the Gospels that we initially struggle to understand. Because Jesus is very hard on this man. Hearing his request, he answers, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. A Roman centurion will later make almost the same request of Jesus for his servant who's dying. And he doesn't even make the request. He sends other people to ask Jesus. And yet in that case, Jesus goes and he heals the servant and he praises the centurion for his faith. What happens here is actually explained by the contrast or actually the contrasts. One professor writes, in Samaria, Jesus had just enjoyed his first unqualified, unopposed, and open-hearted success. Now he returns to his own people, and consistent with the pattern so far, the response is, at best, ambiguous. There's a contrast between the Jewish official here and the Gentile centurion later. It's the same contrast between the overall responses of the Samaritans and the Jews. God gave Israel all the theological privileges. They had every religious advantage. But when the time of testing came, their faith proved false. Jesus' rebuke here is not just for the official, this one man. The word you that he says is plural. 
He's talking to these Jews who want signs rather than his word. He's talking to people who want signs rather than him. The Samaritans had just proclaimed Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And the Galileans welcome him only as a magician, a worker of wonders, of tricks. The phrase in verse 45, the Galileans welcomed him, is dripping with irony. Yes, they welcomed him. Why? Having seen all that he had done at Jerusalem at the feast. They welcomed him because they wanted a show. They wanted more signs and wonders. And this official is no different. He's one of them. We're just, because of his circumstances, far more sympathetic to his plight. The people that Jesus rebukes are people who are always looking for something amazing. And while his cause is a worthy one, this official is no different. It's moments like this that really put our principles to the test. Do we believe that Jesus' insistence to the woman at the well that what's happening spiritually matters more than what's happening physically? Do we believe him? Not that the physical doesn't matter, not that the physical needs are irrelevant, but that spiritual health matters more. Now that's easy to accept, and now the dial's turned up to the extreme. The physical enemy here is death. This man's son may die. Do we still believe what Jesus says about the physical and the spiritual? One pastor observes that the official is approaching Jesus out of the desperation of need, but with little thought as to who Jesus is. He's not interested in getting to know Jesus. He's not interested in the fulfillment of prophecy. He's interested in the well-being of his child. And this is why Jesus responds so sharply. He's going to heal the man's son. It's a sign of his power and his compassion. But what he's saying needs to be heard by all. These things are signs. These wonders are signs. They point to something. The man's need for his son matters, but not as much as his need for a savior. And the son's physical life matters, but not as much as the life of his soul. Jesus heals the child's body as a sign that he also has power to heal the soul. Kids, the most important thing you will ever hear from me is that you need to have real faith. Only real faith secures your soul for the day of judgment. On that day, I know you can't imagine that day coming anytime soon, but on that day, God will not accept your good works or your good attitude or your good accomplishments. Compared to God's holiness, those things are as filthy rags. Only real faith makes us fit for heaven. And real faith is the only thing that never fails us in this life. You're kids, but you're experiencing it already. That life can be hard. There's much in the world that they say is good, but that scripture and your conscience say are not. What do we do with that confusion? There's much in the world that hurts people who disappoint us, hardships, and even the death of people we love dearly. What can help with such real hurt? Trivial, 
false spirituality called faith might be good enough for a trivial life. But that's not what we get to live. Now, this life is filled with good. But we can't even get the best out of the good apart from faith in Christ. And this life is also filled with confusion and pain. And these things cannot be helped except by real faith. That's what we get a chance to see in this morning's text. The story of real faith. Given, tested, and proved true. When the official approaches Jesus, he's not approaching him in faith. His interest isn't in Jesus as the Messiah or Son of God. It's in Jesus, the one who can work a wonder and perhaps save his son from dying. A New Testament scholar wrote, The sick child's father committed at least two errors. One, he took for granted that in order to effect a cure, Jesus needed to come down to where the boy was, to his bedside. And two, he was also not convinced that Christ had any power that goes beyond death itself. And that's why there's such urgency in his request. Come down before he dies, before it's too late. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he teaches us that faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Now, for most of us, that means the word of Christ read and preached from the scriptures. But for this man, it may have been the word of Christ from his own lips. Because look what happens next. Verse 50 says, go, your son will live. He does not explain. He will not go to the boy. We, 2,000 years later, know that Jesus has the authority to utter such things and make it happen. The disciples kind of knew that Jesus had the authority to make it happen. John has been emphasizing Jesus' control over the whole universe in this gospel. But how is this Jewish official supposed to respond? He came to a wonder worker. What mattered was that the wonder worker went back to his son and worked wonders. And instead, he gets only a rebuke. And then a command, go. Now, whether Jesus gave him faith at this moment or a prior one, we can't actually know. I like to think it's this moment because this is certainly the moment where it's tested. Jesus spoke a word of promise. And the circumstances of this man's life made it incredibly difficult to believe him. How hard must it have been to walk away from Jesus? This wonder worker who you think is your son's only hope. And he says, go. Now the circumstances make it incredibly difficult to believe Jesus's promise. And how does he respond to this test of faith? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And went on his way. The man believed. Not in a sign or wonder. He didn't get one. Not because he knew Jesus had made his son well. He believed because Jesus said it. He thought his most pressing need was that Jesus would return with him to his house and help his son. But he learned that actually his most pressing need was simply Jesus. And so the man believes Jesus' word, and he leaves. He does what Jesus tells him to do. Some Jews gathered around were just looking for a spectacle, and this man at first was just looking for a spectacle, albeit for his son to be made well, which is a pretty good one to look for. But now he's not looking for a spectacle. He's just looking to Jesus' word. 
and trusting that his son is well. Believing God's word, trusting God's promises, this takes real faith. Our circumstances will not help us believe. Faith is not just in the works of Jesus. Faith is in Jesus. So while the official is walking home, it's quite a long way, he meets servants rushing to tell him the good news, that his son is well. He quickly asks and has it answered that, yes, it was at the moment when Jesus was speaking to him. And he himself believed and all his household. A story that began with significant contrasts to what had just happened in Samaria ends with more significant similarities. As another pastor puts it, in both the Lord manifested his glory, absolute control over the physical universe. And in both, he uses these encounters to bring about faith in the hearts of his children. For each of us, faith requires an inward, outward, and upward dimension. Inward refers to how that faith impacts our own lives. Jesus begins the exchange by rebuking those Jews who cared only about what he can do for them. Now, Jesus is going to be rejected by those when they find that his agenda does not serve their own political ends. At the wedding feast, his own mother, Mary, first tried to mold Jesus' power into her agenda and plans And the fact that she submitted to his lordship when he rebuked and challenged her on that is a sign that her faith was genuine. Those who reject Jesus for not being what they want him to be reveal their faith to be false. And this test will come to us too. This test comes often to us too. And the question is, will we submit our lives to Jesus' wisdom and lordship Or will we demand that Jesus fit himself into ours? Israel should not have missed out on the blessing of the Messiah. They had every advantage to trust his word and put their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And what stopped them from doing it was how many of them clung to their own plans and agendas. They would approve of Jesus when he performed the way they wanted him to. And they would reject him when his works and words were inconvenient or hard. Our faith is put to this test too. Perhaps it is even now. And so rest assured, the faith that God gives you never fails. It will prove true. Feeble as we are, the faith God gives is strong. True faith requires an outward dimension as well. Notice that both the woman at the well and the Jewish official, given faith in Christ, have their own lives changed, and in both cases, they go change the lives of others. The woman went back into the village and evangelized all who would hear. And this man's faith, verse 53 says, was used to save his whole household. But we should remember that false faith can also be shared. It is often shared. The crowds were gathering around Jesus. Jesus was welcomed in Galilee because others shared the news of this great wonder worker. They welcomed him. But welcomed is not the same as believed. 
And when we tell others about Jesus, when we seek to show him at work in our lives, what kind of faith are we showing? Submission to his will and word, the faith that God gives? Or a cherry on the cupcake of our own designs? I heard a pastor once put it this way, people rush to hear the gospel for what they can get out of it. Look at the success of the prosperity gospel. Turn on any Bible channel on TV. Health and wealth charlatans who claim that if you dress up everything you say and do in the language of faith, nothing bad can ever happen to you. Less severe, many people still try to win others over by telling them that Christianity will improve their circumstances just as surely as it will improve their eternity. Lots of people claim the language of faith for the good of their cause. Pacifists, social justice warriors, addiction counselors, environmental activists, lots of groups invoke the language of faith or the language of Christ to support their own agendas and desires. Or even a level below that, just the It will help you be a better person mentality. You should go to church or you should be religious. It will help you be a better person. Isn't that just another form of starting with our own agenda to be a better person and seeing how we can make Christ fit into it? Even if the agenda is a good cause, and several of those I named are, if it's not the cause of Christ, it's not true faith. Christ's agenda is the gathering and the perfecting of the saints. His agenda is the march of his church that tears down the gates of hell and sets the captives free. And when we share our faith, it must be this faith. Christ as the savior of his people. Anything else will lead to disappointment and delusionment. You want to know why so many kids grow up and leave the church? It isn't the quality of the youth program. It's the quality of the faith to which they're being pointed. Christ's agenda is an army, bold, whose battle cry is love reaching out to those in darkness. His agenda is a call to war for his people to love the captive soul and to rage against the captor. And this is why All true faith, all faith in service of this agenda, must have an upward dimension as well. Because we simply cannot do this, any of it, on our own. Put yourself in the shoes of that Samaritan woman. Put yourself in the shoes of that father with the dying son. Without faith, you could do no differently than they. She is hiding in her shame and her guilt and her isolation. She's built up walls to protect herself from the pain of life. He is grasping at straws in desperation, willing to do anything, whatever it takes to save his son. These responses aren't unreasonable, but they are unfaithful. And we know this because when Jesus gives them true faith, their responses change. Instead of looking down, they look up. 
in faith. They look to him and to his word in trust. In faith, they look to him and to his word in comfort and hope. In faith, the weak can say they are strong in the strength that God has given. Kids, these are the kinds of circumstances I was talking about before. It's serious stuff. And I don't mean to be an Eeyore. There are so many great blessings and joys in life. There are uncountable good gifts for us to celebrate and enjoy. Some of us get to go to a fish concert tonight. The world is filled with good things. But anyone who ever tells you that the Christian life, the life of faith, is only good things is not talking about true faith. They're not talking about real life. Real life is this woman's. She had a lifetime of hurt and shame. She had made sinful decisions. She'd been victimized by other people's sins. There were significant consequences that would be present for the rest of her days. Her life was a mess. And the only way she had found to control the hurt was to wall her life off from other people. This Jewish official is in incredible grief, and his son hasn't even died yet. He doesn't know yet how deep this pain can be. And yet he's still scrambling to find anything that will prevent this unbearable pain. And in both cases, Jesus gives them exactly what they need. He gives them faith. He points them upward to trust and hope in God. Some of their circumstances will change. Praise God, the man's son lives. But there will be more confusion and hurts tomorrow and in the days to come in all of their lives. And the point is that in true faith, when we're pointed upward, our lives are no longer defined or controlled by those circumstances. They're defined by faith. Who we are in Christ And so when our circumstances begin to overwhelm us, we only look inward long enough to see the faith that God put there because that faith is always pointing our eyes up, never inward, never to our own agenda and desires, but always up to Christ and his word. That's where the faith he gives us points because that is the only place we will ever look and find what we need. Christians, look up. 